Hey, this is the final edition of Wilderness Environmental Medicine Journal Live for 2017. It's December and we have gifts for you. First, let's talk about drug doping and mountaineering. Secondly, we're going to go to our main journal article on ultra marathoners and their electrolyte and hydration issues. And to end it off, we discuss helicopter rescue. So let's go. Let's talk drug doping. There's an article that came out in High Altitude Medicine and Biology last year, which discussed drug use and misuse in the mountains, a UIA MedCom consensus guide for medical professionals. Now granted, it wasn't published in our journal, but because of its importance, I think it's an excellent discussion nevertheless. Now I'm not going to go through the article point by point, but I want to hit the main ideas, then bring in some interviews I had with some experts while at the ICAR MedCom meeting in Andorra back in October of this year. Now, the aim of the article was to inform mountaineers about drugs commonly used in mountains. For many years, drugs have been used to enhance performance in mountaineering. The UIAA, or the International Climbing and Mountaineering Federation, MedCom Group, states that they have a duty to protect mountaineers from possible harm caused by uninformed drug use. They then search for relevant articles in the scientific literature, peer-reviewed studies, trials, observational studies, and case series to provide information for physicians on drug commonly used in the mountain environment. And here's some interesting anecdotes. Whiskey has been used at the end of a hard Scottish mountain day. Supplementary oxygen at altitude for Everest expeditions since 1922. Methamphetamine to aid endurance in long expeditions. Cannabis and psychostimulants on big wall bivouacs. Cocaine for solo climbing. Drug cocktails to aid acclimatization. Acetazolamide to facilitate, get this, fast ascents of Kilimanjaro to minimize that daily pesky mountain fee, despite the risks involved and drug use on Mont Blanc. First, alcohol. Yes, it's discussed, and if in a competition, it is clearly prohibited. What about anabolic steroids? A lot of talk about it. Sure, it's a no-brainer because you might lose your brain. Strength and body weight are increased, but it may not help overall mountain endurance. Of course, manic episodes and sleeplessness can happen, and some well-known climbers admit to their use. The use of anabolic steroids might also interfere with a diagnosis of high-altitude cerebral edema. Inhaled beta agonists, it is prohibited by the WADA, W-A-D-A, the World Anti-Doping Association, but asthmatics can get a waiver. The WMS suggests that salmeterol be used in high doses close to that toxic level as to help in preventing HAPE, but it's not going to feel too good. Beta-sympathomimetics, such as clenbuterol, that can help skeletal muscle growth, and it's been used in CHF patients. It's also been shown to improve aerobic capacity, CNS stimulation in animals, but these effects have not been studied in humans, especially at high altitude. Bodybuilders use it to cut excess fat, and you guessed it, it is prohibited by the WADA. And beta blockers are a bad choice in altitude. What about acetazolamide and accelerating acclimatization? Well, you might feel better at altitude with less AMS symptoms, and you might improve ventilation via improving that hypoxic ventilatory drive, though some researchers have found that it might actually decrease that hypoxic ventilatory drive. But 
you'll nevertheless sleep better at altitude. However, exercise capacity might actually be reduced according to a 2003 study by Garski. Overall, it has been tested as a doping agent, not because it in of itself is an ergogenic aid, but it might mask other doping agents by virtue of being a diuretic. Dex. Dexamethasone. Well, it's prohibited during competition. But out of competition waivers? Possible. For medical necessity, it can improve performance, increasing aerobic capacity, reducing that pulmonary arterial resistance, and improving cognition, but overconfidence in that drug has led to poor decision-making and deaths at altitude, according to a paper by Sabetti. What about oxygen? Well, stay tuned for that one during the interviews. EPO? Yep, it might help, but the consensus is that it improves athletic performance very little and has tainted many tours de France and other cycling events, so it is not a good idea since it decreases the risk of thromboembolic events. Stimulants such as amphetamines can enhance anaerobic performance and to a minor extent influence the ATP creatine phosphokinase system, glycolysis, and that Krebs cycle during aerobic events, but it mainly works as that mental stimulus to keep going. With this, pain and misery can be obscured, but serious cardiac and heat-related illnesses have been associated with amphetamines and Wada 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 is not a fan of the drug either. You'll be ejected from that game. Cocaine and marijuana, other psychoactive drugs, they're also discussed. Good old caffeine, yep, it does improve athletic performance, and it's not on the Wada dope list. Theophylline, it can be used instead of acetazolamide for AMS, and guess what? Don't puke, though. It's got a narrow therapeutic range with many side effects. Again, I'm not giving you an exhaustive review, but I'm touching on the highlights. Now, let's go to those interviews. Imagine you're climbing a 5,000-meter peak. You're spent, but you have just a few hundred meters to go, and you wished you had taken longer to acclimatize. But wait, you make it happen. Yes, you're going to make it happen. You just got to reach down for those coca leaves in your backpack, and you'll be on your way. Well, ladies and gentlemen, ninos and ninas, we're going to chat with some experts on performance-enhancing ergogenic aids in the mountains, or drug use and misuse in the mountains. And this is a topic of considerable interest, not only in high-level activities, from the Olympic Games on down to high-level international competitions, such as the Tour de France, the high-level track meets, and even American baseball and bodybuilding competitions, but it's even being discussed in the climbing community. It's been discussed in mountaineering circles, where if you summit an 8,000-meter peak, you become an instant rock star. But with sport climbing, speed climbing, and bouldering scheduled to debut at the Tokyo Olympics in 2020, it's a topic we probably need to address right now in the outdoor community. Well, I'm here with Dr. George Rodway at the 2017 International Commission for Alpine Rescue Conference in Andorra, which is a beautiful country nestled in the Pyrenees Mountains between Spain and France. Now, George, you wear many hats, and many of you listening know him in the Wilderness Medical Society and through the journal. He's our full-time associate editor of the journal and the president of the Medical Commission of the UIAA, or the International Mountaineering and Climbing Federation, and he directs the WMS DIM program. You're one of the editors of Mountain Medicine Technical Rescue that just came out last year, George, right? Yeah, that's correct. Well, welcome yes. to the podcast. Thank you, Daryl. The International Commission, International Mountaineering and Climbing Federation, pardon me, uh, I'm only on my second glass of wine now, so I, sh I, uh, <laughs> I shouldn't be misspeaking, but um, yes, the International Mountaineering and Climbing Federation, which is the English version of the title, has uh, been around uh, for, oh, 
I think it uh, was actually founded uh, prior to World War II, and it's a Swiss-based organization. The medical end of the uh, organization is just a small part of what they do. There are many commissions, such as Mountain Preservation Commission, Safety Commission, and uh, perhaps if uh, you're a climber, you've seen that little UIAA label on uh, climbing ropes, and so they, they do test climbing ropes and other gear for strength and safety. Now, the, uh, the Medical Commission, uh, just again, one of the many commissions of the UIAA, serves to promote mountain safety and accident prevention primarily as its, its main duty. And uh, we work closely in association with uh, the International Commission, Commission of Alpine Rescue, whose annual convention we're at right now in Andorra. When mountain safety and prevention fails, uh, ICAR sort of picks up the slack and they take care of the rescue end of, uh, of the deal. So it's kind of a hand-in-glove uh, relationship between the UIA and ICAR, at least from the, uh, the MedCom point of view. And we also look, uh, work closely in association with the International Society of Mountain Medicine. I wanted to catch up with you on the topic on performance-enhancing drugs. And back in 2012, 2013, there were some editorial papers that came out in the journal about this topic. And when we think of altitude drugs, what comes to mind first are acetazolamide and dexamethasone. But are these drugs considered performance-enhancing drugs? I know the World Anti-Doping Agency may consider them that, but if so... Why are they considered performance-enhancing drugs? What constitutes a performance-enhancing drug? That's a, an extremely good question, Darren. I'll, I'll give uh, my best effort at uh, answering that. Drugs that we commonly use at altitude today, such as acetazolamide and dexamethasone, are best known perhaps for prevention of altitude illness and or treatment of altitude illness. Now, one could make the case that if you're preventing altitude illness, which, for instance, will allow someone to ascend more quickly and higher than they might naturally be able to do unaided by any drugs, that is doing more than just keeping them from getting sick. It's actually allowing them to enhance their performance. And so this, this, this is a point of contention among a number of experts. What, what exactly is a prophylactic drug from a illness prevention standpoint, and what is a, a drug that is a performance-enhancing drug. Now, of course, one can make the argument that uh, drugs such as acetazolamide and dexamethasone do both, that they prevent and treat illness, but they can also, by virtue of doing those things, aid your performance at high altitude. Now, is oxygen in this category of a doping agent or, as far as you know, sildenafil, didalafil? Well, uh, I think it's fair to say that the mountaineering community certainly see, sees drugs such as uh, phosphorylase 5 inhibitors, PDE5 inhibitors such as uh, Viagra, to be a, a performance-enhancing drug, you know, for, for reasons surrounding uh, the ability to, uh, for instance, dilate the uh, pulmonary vasculature, allowing for better pulmonary circulation and better oxygen transfer. I mean, there's other things that the PDE5 inhibitors will do physiologically, but that's sort of a, you know, the short version of it. And, you know, likewise, uh, I think many people in the medical community uh, have seen oxygen as, as a drug. I mean, let's face it, it is a drug, and we often use it as such in medicine. 
And certainly the greater mountaineering community, I think, you know, outside of medicine, sees oxygen certainly as a performance-enhancing drug because uh, as somebody who's climbed above 8,000 meters on a couple of occasions, I can speak for myself in saying the difference in using oxygen versus not using oxygen at, at those sorts of altitude above 8,000 meters or 20, roughly 26,000 feet, it's night and day. When you're using oxygen, uh, you can move faster, and by virtue of that, you stay warmer. And perhaps most importantly, you're able to think more clearly because uh, you're much better uh, oxygenated. So I think anybody who's given any thought to oxygen, supplementary oxygen at altitude, realize, yes, it is a performance-sensing drug. And I personally would not go to uh, extreme altitudes such as the summit of Everest uh, ever with, without it, but that's just myself. I mean, I think it gives you a margin of safety you certainly do not have unaided by supplementary oxygen. So, I'm on the way to climbing that 8,000 meter peak, and I gotta ask myself, is oxygen a drug? Ah, yes. Then in general terms, I've gotta ask myself, is this a drug to be used to enhance my performance, save my life, or somebody else's, or both? Well, I know It'll improve muscle oxygenation so I can move faster, spend less time on a dangerous mountain like this one, and the oxygen is gonna stave off hypothermia because I know many deaths up here have been from hypothermia. And I know I'm gonna think better, my cognition's gonna be improved. So I'm gonna make the right decision. Maybe the right decision is to get the heck out of here and the descend. Gonna give me that. Little itty bitty margin of safety. Well, last year in 2016, in the High Altitude Medicine Biology Journal, you know, the UIA MedCom, you guys, published a consensus paper on drug use and misuse in the mountains. And what I can see here is it was an excellent evidence-based review of several hundred articles. And besides the usual doping med suspects like androgenic steroids, epigen, or autologous blood transfusion, they mentioned that beta-2 adrenergic agents, for instance, like salmeterol used to prevent hate, are on the anti-doping list and I wonder why and what is the position of the UIAA on some of these agents? <laughs> Daryl, once again, you've asked a very pr provocative question here. You know, I, I think it's fair to say that the UIAA, uh, like many big organizations, uh, it can it can have a political component to it. And since um, uh, the UIAA has cast its lot with the uh, International Olympic Committee in trying to uh, be attractive to the IOC in order to uh, inject competition rock climbing into the Summer Olympics in, uh, what is it, 2020, I believe? 2020. Yeah. Um, the UIAA, at least initially, was... Yeah, they 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 were somewhat doubtful about where we were going with this uh, drug use and misuse paper in the mountains that was published in late 2016 by High Altitude Medicine and Biology. Now, of course, given that the UIA was doing everything it could to make competition climbing attractive to the IOC, they were a bit reticent to see a paper that talked about drug use by the climbing community. Of course, you know, any competition climbing, as in many other competitions in the world, and certainly Olympic-grade competition, uh, you're governed by WADA, the World Anti-Doping Commission rules. Climbing is no different there, so we on the UIA MedCom would never, ever advocate for uh, drug use or misuse 
in competition-sanctioned climbing. But the vast majority of people that take to the mountains are recreational climbers. We have no way of uh, policing what they do with pharmaceuticals, nor should we, I, I, I feel. I mean, uh, to, to me and so many other people, the hills and you know, alpine climbing is all about freedom, making your own decisions, doing your own thing, and you have to be respectful of those decisions you've made, and you're going to have to live with the consequences of the decisions you make. You know, this, this is the great freedom that climbing affords us, and to try to regulate recreational climbing to the extent of saying, well, you can use this drug, but not that drug, you know, that, that seemed a bit of nonsense. After many years of the Medical Commission debating this with the UIA, it started in 2004, and this paper was not published until uh, 2016. So it was a long road to uh, convince the UIA that we were not trying to undermine their efforts to bring competition climbing to the Olympics. If you look at the paper, we uh, go out of our way to make a point that competition climbing regulated by WADA the World Anti-Doping Commission is, is one thing. Recreational climbing, a different thing. But the fact is, most of us who go to the hills are recreational climbers. And people, I mean, these drugs are available, and people need some background in how, how to use them and not misuse them. So we were uh, very conscious of the need to uh, provide this uh, public service. You know, it's kind of interesting, too, as I think about this, there are some people, especially those that are paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to summit Everest, they become instant rock stars, as I alluded to earlier, because they climbed a mountain. So I'm wondering, with regard to these professional alpinists, if we find out they had some doping agent in them, does that fall into the category of a recreational climber, or is that more under kind of a professional sport slash alpinist type of ethical regulation, if you will? I don't know how to say that. Well, once again, Daryl, you've provided uh, an especially provocative question. <laughs> Have more wine. To which, <laughs> to which uh, there isn't necessarily an easy answer, but I'll, I'll make it as uh, brief and concise as I can. Certainly, there there are uh, you know a subgroup of high-altitude climbers, particularly that make a living and sometimes a good living out of publicizing one outlandish climb to the other. You know, climbing 8,000-meter peaks in winter or climbing a particularly hard routes, new routes, any time of year. You know, these are largely Europeans today doing this. In some of the European countries, there is, in their, in their mountaineering communities, I should say, there's great debate about what drugs this alpinist is taking, this well-known uh, star is taking versus that. Are they, are they doing it unaided, et cetera, et cetera? Well, I mean, that's it, uh, all grist for the mill because uh, for the most, since it is not, you know, what these guys are doing, these high-end Himalayan alpinists, it's not competition climbing, so no one's doing pre or post, you know, urine sampling or blood sampling or anything like that. So it, it is incumbent upon the, uh, the performer, uh, the alpinist, to be as honest and open about what aids they use or don't use. Now, that said, many of them, at least some of them, get accused of using this drug or that aid for a certain new climb that is uh, record-breaking or makes them a lot of money in sponsorship deals and so forth. It creates constant argument because there's no way of testing these folks under these, you know, the new route on the backside of K2, extremely difficult, extremely remote, 
in many cases, whether they get to the summit or not, we're largely relying on, on their word, on their good word of do, did they get to the summit? Did they take supplementary aids? Did they use Viagra as a performance enhancing drug? You know, if, if they say no, they did everything completely unaided, there's going to be somebody that argues, you know, usually a competitor that argues, well, uh, he or she used drug XYZ to get them up that route. Or, you know, and sometimes they'll even argue, you didn't, all, you didn't get all the way to the summit, you stopped 10 meters short or something like that. So in, in some parts of the world, it's uh, difficult, to, <laughs> difficult to appreciate the kind of emotion these sorts of alpine endeavors uh, create. But in, in certain parts of uh, Europe, in the, in the alpine countries anyway, high-end mountaineering is, I mean, some of these people are literally rock stars, and they make a very good living doing it. And uh, if there's any hint of them, they're under, undertaking any sort of un, so-called unethical behavior, on these climbs, it's it's bad for business. Do you have anything else to add? You know, if I can brag a little bit about the paper, I think that speaks well of how much need there is out there for this sort of information. Well, great, George. Well, thanks for your time. Yeah, great to be here, and thank you very much. So, let's get the European perspective. With me is Dr. J.J. Agazi. He is a true mountain medicine physician from Northern Italy. And he's one of the founding members of the Italian Association for Mountain Medicine, also secretary of the Club Alpino Italiano, MedCom, and he's a member of the ICAR Medical Commission. So, JJ, there's been much discussion about drug doping in climbers and alpinists. And there's been several papers. You talked about some Italian papers and a paper from last year from High Altitude Medicine and Biology talks about the problem. But... Is it allowable to permit a climber to take medication to help him or her just get to the summit? No, in my opinion, it's not allowable to do it because, in fact, uh, in my opinion, it's, uh, it's good to give drugs, but uh, only for prevention and not for improve uh, the fitness in high altitude. It's necessary to warranty the safety of mountaineers to give them uh, recommendations, but uh, to pay more attention in giving them drugs if uh, it's not necessary. I respect the paper that has been uh, uh, prepared with a group, uh, by a group of experts around the world of uh, UIA uh, Medcom, in which uh, they spoke about uh, the um, use and misuse of uh, drugs, giving them useful recommendations for uh, mountaineers. In the past, uh, some uh, famous uh, mountaineers like Herman Bull has taken uh, some drugs like uh, amphetamines in order to support their fitness uh, in uh, the mountain. In Himalaya, for example, during the expedition to Nanga Parbat, it can be an object of uh, discussion because uh, somebody says that they, it has been uh, a good idea to take uh, these drugs in order to support and to warranty the descent against the exhaustion. But uh, other doctors uh, say that not is, uh, is incorrect, is, uh, is wrong and is uh, unethical. And so absolutely to forbid to this uh, kind of uh, attitude of the mountaineers. Some uh, guides are used to give uh, to their clients, uh, for example, acetazolamide before uh, going to Himalaya, for example, for a trek. And uh, as this is uh, sometimes it's quite usual 
but uh, in my opinion is not uh, is incorrect because uh, is a right thing to give uh, drugs against uh, AMS or other uh, altitude uh, pathologies but uh, only if uh, it's necessary Personally, I'm contrary to the use of uh, stimulants of uh, other uh, substances that can provoke uh, problems, especially without uh, the help of a, a doctor uh, expert in mountain medicine. In, in my opinion, uh, we can say that uh, mountaineering is not uh, recognized as uh, an Olympic sport. So I don't know if uh, it's correct or not uh, to, to say there is doping because uh, it's not an Olympic sport. For example, there is a discussion about the use of uh, oxygen on the 8,000 meters oxygen, peaks. Yes. Uh, somebody say that is, uh, this is, uh, use of oxygen is doping, and somebody says not. In fact, uh, there are two different classifications mm. uh, between mountaineers. For example, the summiters, we do it with uh, oxygen, and the other that didn't take oxygen. It's, it's, it's quite different. In the literature, there, is, uh, there are very few data about the, the use and misuse in, during the, in the Alps or in the Alps or, or in, uh, around the world, in, on the mountains of the world, about the use of uh, drugs. Some studies are, are made now, but uh, are very few. Now, another uh, example of uh, misuse of drugs could be the Ultra trails competition, they are uh, now spreading in the Alps and not only in the Alps, but uh, around the world. Right, the and, in this, uh, and in these competitions, uh, certainly is uh, quite unknown, but uh, there is uh, a use and misuse of drugs. For example, of, of, uh, against, against the pain, against the exhaustion. Right. The athletes take drugs, but uh, the first uh, check in order to to find uh, eventually some uh, drugs, some uh, substance of abuse are uh, starting to be made, but uh, this is a new, a new field. This kind of competition that are very strong. Reinhold Mesner said uh, in an interview that 90% of the mountaineers that go to the Mount Everest base camp uh, uh, take drugs. And these are stimulants, or what kind of drugs? No, he said uh, drugs, generally. Just drugs. Mm -hmm. But in fact, when you, when you go in, a, in one base camp of 8,000 8, 8, meters peak, uh, effectively, mountaineers can take drugs in order to prevent uh, AMS or uh, for some other, some other physical problems. It's, it's, it's more common that, uh, than in a, in a, a town, than the, the sea level. Mm. The best things to do is uh, to uh, make a, a big uh, prevention in, uh, made by the mountain doctors in order to give uh, good, right information to mountaineers going to Himalaya, to South America, uh, everywhere in, uh, in the mountainous uh, region of the world to warranty the safety, to say that some substances can be uh, dangerous, can provoke problems, serious problems, can be determined uh, a, a high risk. And another problem is not to take the drugs that are given to fight the high altitude pathologies, not before 
but to take them after in case of pathology, if not before, in order only to improve their performance, their fitness in, in altitude. This is another phenomenon that uh, unfortunately can happen. Well, thanks, and it's great to see you again after our time in the Grand Canyon. Thank you very much, Daryl. It has been a great pleasure for me to tell something about uh, this uh, new topic, this new uh, stimulant uh, field of the mountain medicine. So as you see, there is a wide divergence with respect to opinions. I recommend that you read the article from the High Altitude Medicine Biology Journal in 2016. It can illuminate more on your medications in the mountains. Now we move on. Now let's talk about exercise-associated sodium and hydration issues in this month's journal. Our friends Aaron and Trevor are going to take you through it. Since we had some microphone issues, well, I'm going to occasionally interject. So here we go. Hey everyone, this is Aaron Riley, and I'm here with Trevor Maysjack at the UNM International Mountain Medicine Center here to review a paper titled Exercise-Associated Hyponatremia, Hypernatremia, and Hydration Status in Multistage Ultramarathons, with the primary authors being Brian Krabach and Grant Lippin. So this is kind of a timely article. We've actually just come back from providing medical support at two different multistage ultramarathons. Um, one being uh, our Wilderness Medicine Fellow, Jake Jensen, went to provide medical support with the Stanford Research Group down at the Four Deserts Atacama Race. And I just came back with uh, our fellow, Jake, as well, and uh, one of our residents and their faculty to provide medical support at the Trans-Pecos Ultramarathon that's in the Big Bend Ranch State Park. So what this paper looked at, looked at several of the Four Deserts Racing the planet races, primarily two in Atacama, one in the Sahara, and one in the Gobi Desert, and recruited participants to evaluate two main things. So one is the incidence of EAH in multi-stage races, as well as the relationship of weight change to serum sodium level. There's a pretty big body of literature when it comes to single-stage ultramarathons that uh, looks at, at these things, but it's never really been looked at in multi-stage races before. And the big difference between single-stage races and multi-stage races is in Single-stage races, generally there's a start line and a finish line, and you take as much time as you need to get from one to the other without any real break. Um, they can be 50 kilometers up to the longest one that I've heard of is 300 miles, but predominantly in the 50-kilometer to 100-mile range. Multi-stage races, on the other hand, are divided just like kind of what you would think of the Tour de France. So there is a start line and a finish line every day with a total cumulative distance over a total number of days, and generally divided up into several marathon stages with one 50-mile stage, generally situated somewhere within the event. They're generally five to six stages um, and last for six to seven days. These races in general were basically four back-to-back marathons each day, and then on the fifth and sixth day, the runners had to cover a 50-mile distance. And that's a pretty common setup for these multi-stage races. Trevor, let's talk about kind of the, the paper itself and kind of what the primary endpoints were. So what were the two main things that they were looking at? Yeah, so in this study, the um, primary things they were looking at was um, serum sodium concentration levels uh, as well as body weight. So they measured this at various points throughout the race, so um, stage one, stage three, and stage five, and then kind of really looked at the end race results there. It seemed like they also had kind of a surprise finding that wasn't one of their initial goals, but we'll talk about that a little bit more later. 
And so let's talk about kind of that first primary endpoint of just the incidence of exercise-associated hyponatremia. Um, it's been studied, like I said, prior in, primarily in kind of single-stage races and some shorter races, and we have incidences for marathons, triathlons, and single-stage ultramarathons. Some of those incidences are pretty wide, but it's never really been looked at in ultramarathons before. So how do they kind of look for EH, and, and how do they define the EH? Yes, they actually had kind of an interesting classification, I would say, of the EAH. So classically, we define hyponatremia as um, a serum sodium level that is below 135 milliequivalents per liter. In this paper, they further went to break down into what they called biochemical hyponatremia, which was a serum sodium, um, I believe, of 129 to 135, or sorry, less than 135. Uh, and then they had uh, clinical significant hyponatremia, which was less than 129 uh, milliequivalents per liter. Yeah, that is interesting, especially with kind of some of your specific experience in the Grand Canyon that we'll talk about later. But, um, you know, definitely there's been case reports of uh, symptomatic exertional hyponatremia at serum sodiums greater than 129 and asymptomatic individuals with serum sodium less than 129. So we're not exactly sure why they created this created this delineation and would have maybe liked to see symptomatic versus asymptomatic hyponatremia. But otherwise, um, I think it's a proper definition. And let's see, what did they what did they find as far as the incidence during the race? The overall incidence of the of hyponatremia throughout the entire race came out to around 14.8%. So this is total um, incidence throughout the race. So some of these folks had hyponatremia maybe after stage one or stage three, but might not have ended the race with hyponatremia. Uh, when you actually look at the end of the race, um, after the last stage, the instance of hyponatremia was 11.3%. And we know just from the single stage and other uh, published data that that's within the realm of what other uh, other studies have shown to be the uh, incidence of EAH to be. Now, you know that the incidence increased over the course of the race, with the highest incidence being after the, the long stage. Um, there's different theories on to why this happened, but that incident is actually closer to what we see the incidence in single-stage ultramarathons, um, with thoughts that it might be related to the longer distance, the 50-mile distance, creating more physiologic stress, leading to more antidiuretic hormone secretion, that there might have been less PO intake because of nausea from the stress, um, and maybe even increased GI issues and vomiting, to where maybe the people only wanted to take in water. We don't really have that data, but certainly is in uh, agreement with previous published data on single-stage ultramarathons. So here's the EAH incidence and the weight change to serum sodium in multi-stage races. The serum sodium concentration and body weight were examined throughout this race. Now, exercise-associated hyponatremia, EAH, was classified in several ways, and you can listen to Trevor discuss that. But about 15%, yes, 15% of all participants had hyponatremia at some time during the race, and 11% had hyponatremia on finishing the race. Now, Aaron says that the incidence is similar to single-stage races where longer distances on any given day might cause stress, leading to this increased ADH secretion with water retention, nausea, vomiting, and a desire to take in free water as opposed to those yucky electrolyte solutions. Sure, so EAH is something that has become more well-known over the past few decades, uh, specifically in relation to endurance activities. Initially, it was called water intoxication, but obviously over the last 20, 25 years, as we better understood it, um, we've related it to hyponatremia, that's exertional. But there's some different mechanisms that are proposed for why EAH occurs. Can you review those real quick? 
Yeah, sure. I think that most most people that have a good understanding of EAH or exercise-associated hyponatremia would, would agree that there seem to be kind of two primary things at play. So the first one is overhydration, uh, people being a little overzealous with how much water they're taking in. And that can be free water or it can be mixed with electrolytes. It, it doesn't really matter. The main point being that there's a large volume of ingested fluid. The second factor that kind of comes into play is that we have this over-secretion of, of antidiuretic hormone inappropriately. And this is a result of exertion, of pain, uh, nausea, things like that. But basically, this hormone causes us to hold on to all that excess free water. The result of this is that we kind of dilute out this, the serum, and that fluid has to go somewhere. And so the, the issue is that we tend to have some kind of cerebral edema going on. Um, some people will cite that there can be some pulmonary edema, but I think the cerebral, the neurological effects are kind of more, um, more of the issue. Yeah, there are some other proposed mechanisms of just inefficient uh, use uh, or inappropriately inefficient use of the bodies and active sodium stores, fluid shifts, things along those lines, but those are definitely the two main mechanisms that are discussed. So the secondary investigation of this paper was to actually look at sodium serum concentrations in relation to volume status, which as a surrogate for volume status, they were using changes in weight. And so they were getting pre-race weights, and then they got weights after each stage. Now, how do they kind of divide out the, the weight and the weight loss to kind of assess for volume status? Yeah, so so using body weight changes as a, as a proxy for hydration status. They said that greater than or equal to 0% body weight change, they classified as overhydration. If they were between 0 to a 3% decrease in body weight, this was classified as euhydration. And then if they had greater than 3% body weight change, a reduction that is in, in body weight, that was classified as dehydration. It seems like this is a standard that's been used in the past, but what are some maybe potential issues with using weight to correlate that to intravascular volume status? Well, I think that, you know, we have other forms of weight loss that can be occurring during the, the event. So, um, certainly depletion of glycogen and utilization of that glycogen um, is going to reduce a little bit of your body weight. You're going to have gluconeogenesis and things like that kind of come into play as well. And, you know, there are just a lot of factors that, that kind of affect body weight that could be outside of food status. Uh, do you have anything to kind of add to that or your thoughts? No, I think I think that's exactly what we uh, were thinking about and had discussed before. We even talked about maybe some other potential ways to assess for maybe clinical or uh, um, uh, assess for dehydration in the, the runners. And you kind of brought up a, a couple of good uh, good points. So what were some of your thoughts? Yeah, so, um, you know, talking, we'll take a quick step back and talk about the methodology here. So when they're measuring their serum sodium uh, levels, they're using an iStat machine. iStat's a small machine that just takes a small blood sample into a cartridge and will spit out certain blood values. In this particular case, they're using a 6-plus cartridge. The 6-plus cartridge gives you actually quite a bit of information. It gives you sodium, potassium, chloride, glucose, BUN, and then hematocrit and hemoglobin. And so we certainly have more data that was collected than was presented in this paper. So specifically, we could calculate the participants' serum osmolality using the uh, sodium, BUN, and glucose. Um, other things we could look at is hematocrit and hemoglobin as kind of a, a measure of intravascular fluid status. So other things that 
that are added to that is sometimes some people have proposed that urine specific gravity can be used to assess for signs of dehydration. Although um, that is certainly an imperfect method as well, especially in people undergoing exertional activities, just because of that ADH secretion, they're going to have generally concentrated urine despite what their intravascular fluid volume is. It is something that has been used before and certainly I think a, a reasonable marker to assess for volume status. Just uh, there may be some other things out. It would be interesting data to see, such as those measured serum osmolalities and, and, the, and the runners, given that they should have that information because of the cartridges that they were using. Body weight change, as measured before and after the race, was used as an indirect means to evaluate hydration status. Equal or greater than 0% change was classified as overhydration. And 0-3% to loss, yes, 0-3% to loss was a category deemed normal hydration. Hmm. And more than 3% loss of weight was dehydration. Now several races use weighing in as an indicator of hydration status. Urine-specific gravity is not as reliable, and yes folks, neither is urine color. This has to do with solute excretion, which also affects specific gravity. So what did they find based off of, based off of weight? So as far as weight goes, and I'm just going to refer to the different weight classifications as overhydration, euhydration, or dehydration. So 16% of the participants finished the race in an overhydrated state, meaning that they actually had some body weight gain. 28% of the participants ended in a eudehydration state, and then 55%, so the majority of the participants, ended the race in a dehydrated state. And how did that correlate to the sodium levels? Yeah, so it, it seemed that there was uh, some correlation between overhydration, finishing the race in an overhydrated state, and having a higher incidence of hyponatremia. So of the 20 participants that ended overhydrated, five of them were hyponatremic, so a quarter of them. And then we kind of saw a little bit of an offset trend in the, the dehydrated patients, so or participants rather. So of the uh, 69 participants that finished dehydrated, you saw about 10% of them hyponatremic and 25% of them actually hypernatremic. Yeah, and it's great, you know, they have two great table, or a great table and a great figure in this paper, table two and then figure one that kind of go over that correlation between the hydration status and what the expected uh, sodium concentration, or the sodium change, excuse me, would be. But, you know, what's interesting, and they point this out, is that while overhydration does have some correlation with decreased sodium, we certainly saw hypernatremic folks that were overhydrated, as well as we saw dehydrated runners by their uh, volume status to also be hyponatremic. And so it certainly shouldn't point you in any one direction or it can't be used to definitively assess for what the sodium status is, which I thought was very interesting. Yeah, I think that's very important, especially when you're thinking about providing medical support to these types of events. If you are not fortunate enough to have an ISTAT machine or some type of tool to, to actually measure serum sodium, you could kind of go in the wrong direction if you're trying to manage these participants based on their hydration, specifically on their body weight. You could end up managing the wrong illness. Now, there was a surprise finding that wasn't really a, an initial investigation for this paper that they go into a decent bit, and that was the finding of hypernatremia. We haven't really talked too much about hypernatremia in the ultramarathon literature, but they found in this paper that they're actually three times higher likelihood of a runner to have hypernatremia at an incidence of 52.3% than to have hyponatremia at a total incidence of 14.8%. What were their conclusions to that? 
primarily um, just that hypernatremia hasn't really been looked at before. It was a surprise finding and that uh, really we kind of need to look a little bit more at why hypernatremia could have been experienced in these individuals. They, they propose a few different mechanisms by which these individuals could have been hypernatremic, but the jury's still kind of out as to what the, the result or, or what the cause was. Yeah, we're definitely not sure of the significance of the hypernatremia, the symptoms, or what is the at-risk population, but certainly more study needs to be done into, uh, into hypernatremia and, and seeing if it has its own specific set of risks. So 16% were overhydrated, 28% were euvolemic, and 55 yes, the majority, were dehydrated. A quarter of overhydrated folks ended up being hyponatremic. 10% of those dehydrated had hyponatremia, and 25 yes, 25% of dry runners had hypernatremia. Now, to my knowledge, nobody seized. But it speaks to the importance that you can't really tell clinically what the sodium level is. You really need that iStat machine. For long races, though, hypernatremia, at least in this race as studied here, was three times higher than hyponatremia. But guess what? We need more studies. Now, this paper generally had three main recommendations uh, at the end. So one is one that you already talked about is caution is warranted prior to the administration of IV fluids in a collapsed runner because of the likelihood of EH, hypernatremia, or other serious exercise-associated collapse that um, are difficult to distinguish without specific point-of-care testing. Number two is that point-of-care testing is something that should be sought out and, and available whenever possible at any of these events. And the third recommendation is that really IV fluids of any type should be used judiciously when formal testing is not available because of the dangers of treating hypovolemic hypernatremia, hypovolemic hyponatremia, and just really having some clinical uncertainty based off of either weight or other clinical findings to which category the patient falls in. Now, that being said, we've discussed a little bit on our own about the potential, the potential issues with not treating severely symptomatic hyponatremia versus giving hypertonic saline to a runner that is potentially hypernatremic. And we know what the risks are of not treating a severely hyponatremic patient versus we don't really know what the risks or significance are, uh, what the risks or significance are of treating a hypernatremic patient with hypertonic saline. So I think in the interim, if there is some concern, judiciously using hypertonic saline, if there's any possibility of severely symptomatic hyponatremia, is probably warranted. So the bottom line? Be careful of willy-nilly IV hydration in the collapsed runner. You need a point-of-care test, and if you're a medical person, try to obtain one of those before long races. Now, what if you don't have such a machine and you got a patient? Well, look, if you have to give IV fluids, you have to give it. Typically, seizures will occur with hyponatremia, maybe warranting empiric treatment with, yes, hypertonic saline. Now, we don't know what the administration of hypertonic saline does to a hypernatremic runner since there's no literature on this, but they're probably not likely to have seizures. They're just going to be altered. So if you give hypertonic saline to a seizing patient, just monitor them and good luck. Hello, my name is Francois, and we are going to talk about the helicopter search and rescue just briefly. Now, I know you Americans do not use the helicopter as much in search and rescue as we do in Europe. For instance, Switzerland, when we started using it in the late 60s and the early 70s, but that is your problem. Hey, wait a minute. 
Places such as the Grand Canyon or Yosemite SAR, some Forest Service agencies, firefighters use SAR equipment in helicopters. Some of our EMS units have some restrictions if they're privately owned because of FAA regulations. But I got some news for you. We have an excellent local agency, the Bernalillo County Sheriff's Department here in New Mexico, who's taking on helicopter search and rescue with our reach and treat team and our Diploma of Mountain Medicine program in our mountainous locale. And you know what? I caught up with Sergeant Larry Korn, who's a visionary, who leads the Helicopter Operations Air Support Unit. Good giggly wiggly. Got my attention. Can't wait to hear the rest. The aim of this segment, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, is simply to give you a taste, yes, a taste, of what is involved with helicopter search and rescue training. Keep in mind, I'm going to leave a lot of information out, but if any of you out there in podcast land are interested in a more detailed segment, we would be happy to provide that to you in a later podcast. But in this session, I might insert a little summary to emphasize certain points. So, let's not waste time. Deploy, deploy, deploy. Metro 2 on the other side of the road, if it looks okay. I haven't heard In, yet. Inbound. They didn't give it And these two birds have landed, and we've cleared two adequate landing zones, approximately 60 meters from one another, on a plateau here, just under Cabazon Peak. And the rotors are slowly coming to a halt. Those who have cleared the landing zone for the birds are also wearing helmets in case debris should befall them. I'm Larry Corin. I'm with Bernalillo County Sheriff's Department and I run the uh, air support unit. Larry, what is your collaboration with ground search and rescue teams here in Albuquerque and New Mexico? What we found is, is when we were doing some of these mountain rescues or, or rescues in austere environments with the helicopter, uh, we've, we wanted to basically do some outreach with uh, with some organizations like UNM Reach and Treat, the AMRC, and any other uh, fire departments and whatnot that uh, that that basically rescue uh, go on these search and rescue missions. And so we wanted to reach out to them because uh, we we saw this uh, there's an opportunity there for us to make sure that everybody's on the same same page that we we mitigate some risks that involved in possibly landing the helicopter uh, that we basically ultimately get the patient where they need to go and primarily off the mountain or into a hospital. We start off uh, by starting a, a, a fundamental course on on the helicopter and how it operates and some of the, the capabilities and limitations. Uh, we also uh, prep a lot of the people who we work with on how to set up landing zones, how to communicate with the helicopter, and then we take it one step further and we make them basically part of the crew, get them to the point where they know what to expect when packaging a patient, how to utilize some of our equipment such as a screamer suit, and how to handle a tagline in the event that the patient ends up getting hoisted. So Larry's talking about familiarization with the basics of a helicopter, a helicopter use, its limitations, safety issues, communication with a helicopter, and learning how to set up safe landing zones, as well as 
patient packaging, and ultimately use of specialized equipment such as the screamer suit and utilization of proper tagline use, which keeps that patient from spinning round, round during a hoist. Trainees then become part of the helicopter crew during the training, employing what they have learned. We, we talked about short hauls, and just to give the listener kind of an understanding of the terrain out here in New Mexico, we've got pretty steep terrain in the Sandia Mountains, very rugged. There's a lot of winds. Out here in Cabazon Peak, there have actually been some rescues, and this is a very rugged peak. Is there any consideration with the type of air rescue that you guys have to employ vis-a-vis with the short haul versus just, say, a commercial helicopter company doing a rescue. What are some of the considerations that are really important for the listener to understand with regard to this particular type of terrain? Well, one is the environment that we operate in New Mexico. As we Cabazon Peak here is about 7,800 feet, which doesn't sound very, very tall or high of an area. So that's above sea level. But at the same time, it's, it's very hot here in New Mexico. So we have the density altitude. That's a factor. Uh, we have two different helicopters that we utilize. One is an A-Star, and that's kind of our sports car used primarily for law enforcement missions, so it's equipped with a lot of extra radios and, and cameras and things of that nature. We still want to service the search and rescue mission, so we oftentimes reconfigure that. It might mean removing a piece of equipment and uh, setting up the short haul system, because if we, we put a hoist on that helicopter, it's already heavy enough that a hoist, we get diminishing returns, We end up, so we, we opted to short haul. The other helicopter that we have is a UE, UH-1H, an old military helicopter that's equipped with a hoist. That, that requires, at a minimum, a crew of four people. And so I need two up in front, one hoist operator, and one rescue specialist, which is the paramedic. Whereas the, the short haul operation with the other helicopter basically comes down to a minimum of two. The pilot and whoever I'm going to short haul into the, into the location if I'm going to short haul a rescue specialist at all. There's appropriately trained ground crew at, with the patient already who might have hiked into that patient, and they have, for example, a screamer suit. And if they're been properly trained with us, we would end up being able to just short haul them out without even have, having to, to to make another iteration and drop in a, a rescue specialist or a paramedic. Remember, air density is what is going to determine the lift, influenced by variables such as payload, terrain, altitude wind or temperature of the air. The capacity to overcome some of these factors must consider the type of helicopter employed. The quick helicopter used for law enforcement is the standard A-Star that is configured for search and rescue, removing unnecessary bells and whistles and putting in a short haul system versus a big old hoist, which would be too heavy for this A-Star. Now you may have some local helicopter services that have certain kind of helicopters and without getting into the weeds about helicopter specifications, you can yourself Google Emergency Helicopter Extraction Source List. That's the title which gives you information on the various types of rescue helicopters that are used in the U.S. A very basic definition of a rescue hoist, you were wondering, hmm, good question. It is simply a cable winching device that is mounted to the helicopter capable of lowering or raising a person or persons attached to the cable. A short haul basically is to transport one or more persons suspended on a fixed line of about 150 to 250 feet in length. 
or let's say in the case of 200 feet, 60 meters below the helicopter. Now this payload is being transported below the helicopter in order to transport a patient a short distance, normally from a very difficult location to a safer landing area. Hoist systems, they're more personnel intensive. But the key for any of these operations is training. Lots and lots of training. You have a lot of responsibilities. You're using the helicopters for law enforcement and for search and rescue and other things. Is this more of a government-funded type of situation? Since in Europe, a lot of times the patient or the person being rescued would be charged. How does it, how does it work? Because it doesn't seem to me, unless you're aware of other programs in the United States that actually have an active search and rescue helicopter crew dedicated to doing this as well as some of the other responsibilities that you have. We don't want to get in the, into that uh, mindset of if somebody hiked out on the mountain and they're lost, that's their fault. And uh, that's that's not the case at all. There's, there's a lot of people go out to the mountains and uh, we want people to enjoy the state. We want people to enjoy our, our community and, and uh, at the same time, uh, we want them to, if something does happen, we have an obligation to respond within our capabilities. And we have the resources, we have, we have the helicopters, we're appropriately trained, and we have a groups, volunteer groups out there, nonprofit organizations and schools that are working together, all on the same page, and trying to basically help these people who are on the mountain and injured. Ultimately, that's what it's about. We aren't asking for any compensation, although we do always state when we're seeking grant funds if that some of our missions we, we get funding and if those missions come around uh, we're gonna we're gonna jump on them and help uh, it's about saving lives is what it comes down to we're, we're law enforcement officers running an air unit we realize the important role that everybody else has taken on as far as the search and rescue and uh, so we want to help out as much as we can awesome well thanks a lot larry it's been a pleasure to talk to you and we'll no do problem. some training today. It'll be fun. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Okay, this is Dr. Preston Fedor. He's ready to be lifted, ready to be hoisted up. He's one of our UNM faculty members. What do you think? This is outstanding. I can't imagine we have this great experience in the gym course, but here I am in a screamer suit about to go up and do a Huey. It's pretty awesome. Well, good luck. Thanks, Daryl. Hang in there. Having the hook for the hoist while Dane controls the tagline. Preston leans back and the tagline is going to be pulled at the top where Preston is now. And that concludes our Wilderness and Environmental Medicine live podcast from Wilderness and Environmental Medicine, the official journal of the Wilderness Medical Society. Copyright Wilderness Medical Society, published by L. Sevier. Don't forget to complete the CME questions at www.wms.org under Members. And drop us a line at wemlive.wms.org. Be safe and talk to you next time.